Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everybody. How are you doing? I couldn't hear you. Good evening, everybody. How are you doing? <laughs> Everybody's doing great. Well, fantastic. And Mr. Real, you look especially dashing this evening. <laughs> that's not that's not what you said two minutes ago. Well, hang you on. Thought... I'm going to say what I said two minutes ago. Yeah, please go ahead. Go. What well, did you say I mean, me? it looks like you're working at a hospital as some kind of a an RN, and you just got yeah. off after a. 12 hour shift. And I told you this is the wrong side. Uh, opposite Hurley is the name of the shirt. It's a nice t shirt brand. And uh, I've got a couple of them. Uh, this is the one I wore today. Uh, it, you know, you can say what you want about my shirt, but I like it a lot. So, so should we address you as Nurse Hurley? You can call me nurse. My mother was a nurse. My wife was a, a nurse's aide for a while. The best people I know serve in the medical profession. So, and I'm not making fun of the profession, just the attire. No. Just the entire good. <laughs> um, but no, life is good. Uh, been a great week. It's been interesting. We did the, uh, but I was going to ask you the, I think I mentioned something to you and you gave me a quick response, but how did we handle the pre presentation of evidence for the Mike Parker episode? Okay, everybody. Last Friday, if you don't know already, yeah, Bill Real was doing his best impression of Sherlock Holmes and the game. I thought was I was doing a Radio Free Mormon impression. Oh, absolutely. You tracked Laying it down. It you treed that, that uh, whatever it was you were looking for. The game was afoot. Oh. And you did an excellent job because the reason this whole thing was difficult about the Richard um, Nigren. Yeah. I almost feel like I say the Richard Nigren experiment. Yeah. Is there some kind of experiment? Anyway, regardless of that, what you did was difficult because there were about 20 different pieces or threads mm -hmm. of evidence. And there was mm -hmm. none that was super strong. But you had to weave all of these together in a tapestry, yeah. which yeah. created a very, very strong circumstantial case that every member of Farms was in on it. <laughs> the old Farms. Hey, just a quick question. I haven't seen anything. I've been really paying much attention. But any of those five guys step forward to apologize for their part? Not that I've heard. Okay, good. Just uh, good. So Richard Nigren lives on. <laughs> yes, I think they're all in their, their clubhouse sharpening their knives right now, making special plans for you. Especially uh, Robert Boyland. 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 Yeah, Boyland, from Desna. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So okay. anyway, yeah, hopefully that's not too inside baseball. And those of you who know will know, but we yeah. don't want to bore those of you who don't know. And if you don't if you know, don't go know, check it out. Go check it out. There you go. And what was the name of it again so they can find it? Bill. It was the invention of Richard Nigren. If you do a search on our YouTube channel for the invention of Richard Nigren, you will find it. Fantastic. A fictional black apologist in Birmingham, Alabama. Don Smith says, oh, Bill, you expect too much from the felonious five. Yeah, the felonious five. I like that. that's a good. That's a good little tag name for those guys. A little moniker. It is one yeah. more and they could have been the sinister six. <laughs> they could have been or the September. So. <laughs> 
which I expect our next guest is going to get maybe better than you. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. You get maybe. the Sinister Six. We'll find out. We should probably uh, add let's bring on our screen. guest, and we'll, we're, that's going to be our first question to him. No googling in the green room, by the way. We're going to bring on Dan McClellan, our guest for tonight. There oh, he is. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are y'all doing? I'm doing great with the artwork on the back wall. I hope you know what the Sinister Six is. Yeah, those are those are some villains I think associated with Spider-Man, aren't they? Oh, I couldn't yeah. name them. I couldn't name them for you, but um, you could probably get five out of six easy. If if they're the standard uh, Spider-Man villains, um, probably. Yeah. Well, my understanding is that unfortunately, back when uh, Andrew Garfield was doing his uh, role as Spider-Man, and they did the first two movies, and then the third one never got made, even though it was obviously set up to be made. That mm -hmm. that third movie was going to be. The Sinister Six against Spider-Man. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be able to find it sometime. It's it's not enough for Spider-Man to fight one <laughs> supervillain. He's got to fight oh, six supervillains for it to really be a contest. And here's an interesting sketch that appears to be <laughs> Spider-Man. Yeah. Dan, can that, you tell us anything about this sketch? I was that was during the Olympics. There was a there somebody had taken a photo of, and now I've forgotten his name. The 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 uh Mitt Romney British no the British diver. Who's actually married to the gentleman who did the uh um uh bleh. okay the questions <clears throat> are only gonna get harder. <laughs> yeah, the um so it was a British diver who was very famous, but there was a picture of him walking next to the pool, and I thought he's got a body type that would make for uh, a great Spider-Man. And so I I pulled out a pad of paper and really quickly sketched him as Spider-Man. And like in the photo, I think he's holding a, a towel or something like that but it was something i really i sketched really really quick so this um, is amazing to me because i have no artistic skills and i'm always very impressed by people who do have them like you tom daly that's who it was tom daly is the the british diver there was a picture of him um but yeah this is what i used to want to do for a living was draw comic books really um, yeah do you know brian so, otley i do he and I are mutuals on uh, on a couple of different platforms. That's awesome. Yeah. but Well, uh, I just think it's great that you have this. And I wanted to mention, also on your wall, you've got Captain America. It looks like you have the first Iron Man. That looks like an Iron Man number one up there. Is that what it is? I think so. Or at least it's the cover from it. Yeah. 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 Th these are these are posters. They're um, wood um, wall hanging. So let's see. I could probably get you a little bit more of what's going on up there. Oh, thank you. Fantastic Four, Captain America, Thor, Hulk. And that's the first appearance of Hulk. Yep. Of course, they didn't start with number one with Hulk because they transferred from Tales to Astonish. But that may be too much inside baseball. And what the heck are you doing <laughs> wearing a Batman T-shirt on the show? So I DC. Uh, <clears throat> what's the I'm, I'm going to say. Popped my comic cherry. Um, hopefully, that's not uh, uh, that's not too vulgar on on your show. But um, oh, Bill's done much worse. I, I, way worse. <laughs> so, so that was the um, first comic book you ever read. Was a DC I, comic. I, that was what really got me into comics. The first comic book I ever bought actually sat around for a while. I went to the All Star Fan Fest in 1993 when it was in Baltimore. Um, with a friend, my neighbor, Sarab Mather, a good friend of mine. I wish I'd kept track of him. But uh, there was a, a comic book display and I went over and I had been drawing like cartoon characters, the weasels from uh, from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That was the first thing I learned to draw. Somebody on the school bus one day after I saw it in the theater showed me how to draw it. And I blew my mind. I was like, I can recreate 
what I saw on the screen. And um, so I was doing cartoons and then I saw all these comic books at the All-Star Fan Fest and I picked up the old X-Men number one, Jim Lee's run. And, mm, uh, yes, and from the 90s. Yeah. And, and that was kind of the standard for a while, but I kind of, I set it aside and uh, was doing other things because in the, it was in the fall and the winter that I wanted to be a comic book artist in the spring and summer. I wanted to be a pro golfer. So, um, <laughs> so I was focusing on other things. And then uh, the, I found out about the uh, death of Superman. And so that was when I said, okay, I need to pay more attention to this. And that was the first thing where I had to get all the back issues. I had to get all the, all the other um, titles that intersected with this storyline and, and fill out the whole thing. Uh, and then I got into Batman as well at the time. So that was, that was, uh, you know, I just made it to second base with X-Men and Jim Lee, but it was, uh, uh, it was DC that, that brought me home. So was uh, it Marvel? Then, you mean Marvel that brought you home? I hope. Well, no, you said it was DC that brought you home. Yeah, because it was Superman and Batman that where I said, OK, I'm committed to this. OK. Um, and then I got into Image Comics after that, uh, right. which was really fun in the in the late non 90s, although I, I managed to avoid anything drawn by Rob Liefeld. Um, I just could not get into that dude's uh, art. So I appreciate the characters that he created. I appreciate the storylines he came up with, but uh, I couldn't stand his art. Well, this is fascinating to me, but I'm thinking it may not be as fascinating to the people watching. Yeah, I don't know it's what they came about to see. Mormonism. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like your research that you've applied to comic books, you've duplicated and perhaps accelerated when it comes to Bible studies. Is that right? Far exceeded. I get embarrassed when people who are actual academics when it comes to comic books want to talk with me. And I'm like, I'm I'm gonna embarrass myself uh, if we go any further than this. So um yeah, to- that's Going Quick far further here. within the set. Yeah. So just to throw out to you, maybe to get at least part of the conversation started, to be an expert in something, to say you got to put 10,000 hours in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've listened to a ton of your TikToks and deeply impressed with your knowledge. I'm just curious at some of the, the time you've spent and places you've been to, to accumulate that knowledge. So I think I, I started getting interested in biblical studies as a missionary, actually. I had I was baptized when I was 20 years old, and I submitted my mission papers a year and a day after my baptism. And uh, once the—I was baptized in Plano, Texas, and uh, my bishop, shortly after I got baptized, was like, we'd like to, you to prepare for a mission. And I was like, that sounds like the coolest thing in the world, but I could never afford that. And they said, we've already had multiple people offer to pay for the whole thing for you. So don't worry about that. We've got that covered. And so I felt I might as well try to prepare myself for being in the mission field with other missionaries. I had read the Book of Mormon. I hadn't read any of the other standard works. So I said, I got about a year. I'm going to try and get through as much of it as I can. I read hour, hour and a half, two hours, sometimes every day, got through all the standard works and then some got to the mission field and and then realized I was way ahead of most of the other missionaries out there. But on the mission, someone um, gave me, excuse me, I was in a little town uh, called, I think it was called, well, I think I was in at the time, either Salinas or a town called Rocha in, in Uruguay. And someone gave me a Bible, a Spanish translation of the Bible that had the Apocrypha in it and a Bible dictionary in Spanish. And I started looking through that. I started reading the Apocrypha, was fascinated by the history, particularly first and second Maccabees. I just fell in love with, with the history, with the culture, with, I wanted to learn about the languages in the Bible dictionary. There was a little chart, um, 
that uh, had a, in fact, hang on just a second. Okay, we've lost Dan. He's pulling Dan a backyard back. professor on us. Okay, so I found, I found a little <laughs> chart. <laughs> I'm glad you're faster than what, the backyard professor Carrie when does? he does that. <laughs> it's, um, it makes it spontaneous. It's fun. So, yeah. did you find the Bible that you you read? So or something yeah, this, else? this was my this was my um, the Bible that was given to me as a gift when I got baptized. Somebody said, "What color Bible would you like?" I said, "Black." And so they said, "Here you go." Um, and <clears throat> so I found this chart in the Bible dictionary that showed all the uh, different ancient scripts, the Hebrew script, the Greek script, and then modern Latin equivalents. And I was like, oh, if I had a Hebrew text, I could decipher what was going on, at least figure out how to pronounce these things. And I didn't know what it was called at the time, but it was transliteration. And uh, I had some, I knew I'd seen a Hebrew text in one of those institute manuals that I snuck onto the mission with me that some, some missions evidently didn't let you bring that kind of stuff but those are huge how do you sneak that onto your mission <laughs> i don't i don't know i uh I, I pack light but uh there was one page that had some hebrew text and this is the actual document that i used where i sat there and tried to decipher uh first transliterate and then decipher as much i, I copied it and shrank it down um, tried to decipher as much of the Hebrew text as I could. And I did an awful job. Like I look at this now and I was like, okay, you figured some stuff out and you missed on, on a lot of stuff, but I'm impressed uh, that you even gave it a crack. That's amazing. Well, and it looks I, like I, a football play. <laughs> it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And, and I had always enjoyed languages. I'd never really learned any until I was on my mission learning Spanish. I, I took German all through high school and did okay. But, uh, I, I fell in love with studying the language, with studying the literature, with understanding the culture. And uh, I heard about a program at BYU called Ancient Near Eastern Studies. And I thought, wow, if I could do that, go on to do graduate work. If I could make a living out of studying the scriptures, that would be about the coolest thing in the world. And uh, Did you get any exposure at all to Nibley during this time? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, not a ton. Mostly it was... Uh, institute manuals which now i look back at and <laughs> and kind of yes. giggle but um because people was... of my age as you probably know from your studies of ancient history people <laughs> of my age who had an interest in this kind of thing and proving mormonism true by mm -hmm. bible studies by dead sea scrolls by nagamati by hooker by crook wanted to follow nibley's path and yeah. go to byu and be in the ancient near eastern studies program and come out and then be able to use those tools to prove Mormonism is true once and for all. <laughs> Did you have any kind of aspiration like that? I I don't remember thinking about that kind of thing. I dabbled in in apologetics to some degree, but I really just wanted to understand the stuff on its own terms. Uh, and like when I was in Uruguay, I was learning about Uruguayan culture, and I felt that we were we were taking kind of a paternalistic stance to what was going on there. We were lecturing people about how they needed to, how their country needed to be run and uh, how they needed to, to live their lives. So I wasn't happy with that. I wanted to understand their worldviews on their own terms rather than through a Latter-day Saint lens. And I feel like I've approached my study of the Bible and, and that world in a similar way. The first I mentioned, uh, I was just on, I was interviewed by Doug Fabrizio earlier this morning on uh, on Radio West, and I mentioned to him the first article, I think I mentioned to him, the first article I ever published was as an undergrad in uh, BYU's 
uh, what was it called? Student Symp Religious Education Student Symposium. And it was an article called Latter-day Saints and Patristics. And it was basically saying, here are things in, in patristic literature that Latter-day Saints really like because it seems like like proto-Mormon stuff, like origin and the pre-existence and all this kind of stuff. And my article was basically saying, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, stop doing this. Um, and so from as early as I can remember, I was trying to let the data function on their own terms. And I, I know that I was involved in apologetic stuff uh, a little bit 20 years ago. I think I got over it pretty quickly when I realized that we did not have a winning hand. Uh, See, this is what happens when somebody mature and intelligent approaches apologetics. <laughs> You're only with it for a short period of time. People <clears throat> like me, we just hang on for decades. Ever and ever, don't we? <laughs> yeah, before we finally realize what you realized early on. But I, I found that that I also wasn't satisfied with just spending all my time ragging on um, ragging on folks who were more more conservative. And so I kind of took this. Uh, I started finding a lot more fulfillment and I felt a lot more um, a lot more uh, respect for the data by taking kind of a middle stance and spending most of my time telling everybody they were wrong. Uh, no, but but saying, OK, this this is uh, not good from this side, but it's also not great from this side. Uh, things are probably somewhere closer to the center in some regards, in some regards it's over here, in some regards it's over there, which meant I was getting hated by people on all sides, which right. is what I still find on social media. I get, uh, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by it. I get messages uh, <clears throat> of love and of hate from all sides. Uh, people will message me and say, um, you know, you're the reason I feel comfortable staying in the church or you're the reason I'm happy I left the church. And then other people who are like, you're dangerous. You're going to uh, run people out of the church. And then other people saying you're a fraud. You're an apologist. You're uh, you know, we don't trust you. And so a Mormon. I yeah, I, I get it from from both sides. And and the funniest, I think, though, is is when I get people who um, I will do videos where I talk about things that are literally the academic consensus, God having a body, God having a wife, uh, stuff like this. Um, and people say, oh, your Mormon is showing. And it's like nothing that I'm saying here would fly except on the most superficial, inaccurate, basic reading, which is clearly the one that you're uh, committed to. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting ride. I found out around 10 or 15 years ago that the trouble with being in the middle of the road is you get hit by traffic going both ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I love this thing about God having a body. We'll talk about that more here shortly. But I understand that God had a body when he was a kid, but when he grew up, he kind of lost it. To some degree, yeah. It got uh, negotiated away. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see. Where are we? Let me ask Bill. Do you have any other questions for Dan? I know, Dan, you've got a lot of background. You've worked for the church. You don't work for the church anymore. Um, I asked Bill if he had a question, then I ran right over him. But let me go ahead and put this question <laughs> in while Bill's thinking of his question, yeah. which is this. You worked for a department of the church that I actually had never even heard of, which was the sacred script, what sacred text sacred translation. Material, translation. Sacred materials translation is the name of the section. The division. Section. Yeah. The so the the department is uh Publishing Services Department. The division is translation and interpretation. The section is sacred materials translation. 
This bureaucracy in the church sometimes <laughs> strikes me as remarkably labyrinthine. It uh, the uh, so publishing services department, also called PSD, is uh, the largest department in the church. So or PTSD. <laughs> uh, when you when you talk to some folks who worked in there, yeah, that's how they remember it. But um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty complex. I worked with phenomenal people that I still love very much and keep in touch with, and have absolutely nothing bad to say about the sacred materials translation section. In fact, there are very few folks I would have anything at all bad to say about uh, in the that I worked with uh, in the church office building. But uh, I didn't work with everybody, not close to everybody. My only question, Dan, is you stepped away from those departments. Mm-hmm. Um and again, watching your TikToks, I see you bring a lot of scholarship. Um, you stick to where the data goes. I know you kind of stay away from stating kind of your personal beliefs there, but but I think you do a good job of correcting things that we've held for generation after generation that doesn't hold up to the data, which I think the Maxwell Institute and their new book about the uh, early Christian church is doing very much the same stuff. Yeah. My question is, did you find that the bureaucracy or the top leadership or, or combining those two, that they were open to these corrections, that they were wanting the, these fixes to happen, or were they resistant to getting up to date on biblical scholarship and criticism? So I, I'm probably not supposed to talk about the uh, conversations I had uh, that are more confidential, but I'll just say that I was pleasantly surprised with how open pretty much everyone that I talked to was to hearing about the data. Um, I I don't think I found anybody uh, above middle management who had any concerns whatsoever. And, and in fact, I, there were, I, I get a lot of criticism, as you can imagine, and particularly on Twitter, where I uh, my politics are a little closer to the surface. Uh, and so I had uh, I had folks who were calling in and trying to get me in trouble and uh, not a single person in the chain of command that I know about ever had anything bad to say about me, had only positive things to say. Uh, and so, yeah, like like I said, everyone I directly worked with was phenomenal. I have nothing bad to say about them. And I never heard about anyone within the system who had any concerns with uh, what I was doing or, or who thought that I should not be providing my expertise to uh, the uh, leadership on all different levels, levels in the church office building. So I had a, I had a good experience there. Uh, and to just put rumors to rest, I was not uh, on, on Twitter, particularly a lot of people are, are convinced that I was kicked out or I was fired and, and that's not true in any way, shape or form. Um, and in fact, they, <laughs> a lot of people are hoping that uh, I will, uh, return in some way, shape, or form to uh, to be able to provide my skill set to what's going on there. Awesome. Very good. Thank well, you. strangely enough, you and I crossed paths maybe 15 or so years ago on a certain message board, which okay. was Mormon <laughs> discussions. Yeah. And now it's discussed Mormonism. Is it? It's the same message board, but they had to change yeah. it because of certain techno- technical things that were going on. But okay. I think that most people in the audience probably know you from your 
TikTok channel. Can you tell us about when you started that, why you started it, and how it's going? Because I understand it's going gangbusters. It, it has gone a lot better than I could have expected. Uh, I think it was March 2021. I was I was seeing uh, a lot of videos being cross-posted on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram from TikTok. And at the time, my understanding of TikTok was that it was for uh, teenagers dancing and for Korean youth to disrupt Republican presidential campaigns. And so I was happy to let them do their thing. But I started seeing people posting videos that uh, where the content was overlapping with what I was researching. And uh, it, some of it was from people who just had no idea what they were talking about. Others uh, were people who were well-meaning, doing their best, who were not specialists. Uh, and so I thought I would go make an account and just kind of lurk for a while, see what was going on over there. And uh, I got the impression that uh, they, the area, the, the platform would benefit from a credentialed expert to come in and, and um, as, as, uh, <laughs> as arrogant as I think it sounds to say, call balls and strikes, be kind of a referee and, and say, mm -hmm. here's what the data support. And I'm not the only one who, who is a credentialed expert in areas related to religion there anymore by any stretch of the imagination. But I was the only one that I had been exposed to at the time. Uh, so that was, I think the first video I posted was on March 30th, 2021. So it has been just over two years uh, that I have been on there. And uh, I'm approaching, uh, I think, half a million followers uh, at this point. And uh, it's been a crazy ride. It's been interesting to find out about this uh, deconstruction community. Within Mormonism, we don't talk about it like that. Uh, but within the evangelical community, people refer to deconstruction or basically uh, dismantling the worldview that has been embedded within their um, their perception and trying to understand where it's coming from, what is worth keeping, what must be jettisoned. Is there something to reconstruct or are we just leaving it on the ground and, and walking away from it? Uh, which has been a fascinating community. I've, I've met a number of wonderful people and have also just been exposed to some of the most ridiculous conspiracy theories and ideas and, and claims related to the Bible and religion. But I, I kind of position myself as someone who's there to try to help uh, increase access to the academic study of the Bible and religion. So it's not just going on in the ivory tower, but something that people can access without having to wait 80 years for it to become public, uh, uh, for it to become open access so it can be on the Internet. Um, and then I also try to position myself as someone who's there to help combat the spread of misinformation regarding the Bible and religion. So I've probably taken off a, a far bigger bite than I can chew, but uh, I'm hoping that other people will get involved too. And, and some already are. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. That's amazing. You say you're approaching a half million followers now after yep. two years. I don't know about you, Bill, but I think I'm starting to experience some podcast envy. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I'll tell you, it, He's gotten big. TikTok's a lot different from a podcast uh, and and from Twitter and, and other things. The the growth feels a lot slower on the other platforms than on than on TikTok. Yeah, it's feeling glacial here. <laughs> Wait, this, this <laughs> we're doing good, all we can. <laughs> this would be a good time for us to put out a call to all our faithful listeners to please um, 
what what are all the things that are supposed to do, Bill and hit Dan, in order to increase the? <laughs> yeah, uh, please hit the subscribe way. button, hit the Mash like button, share this button, in places. Right? Yeah, mm -hmm. um, tell them what they and... want, Johnny. <laughs> anyway, so hit the like button, subscribe. hit the subscribe button. Yeah, share it and... somewhere. Put this on a you know share your favorite episodes on social media, and uh, we could go to the donation thing, but I'll save that for the end. Well, I had asked you when we were talking about this um, earlier or yesterday or whenever it was, Dan, about what it was that was your most popular TikTok that you have done on your channel. And you mm -hmm. sent us one and we wanted to play it here so everybody would get a taste for what it is you do and also see what the most popular TikTok was. All right. Yeah. And just FYI, I don't know if Maven's there, but she had to step away for a minute. Do you know if it's the first one? Oh, there you are. Go ahead, Maven. I'll let you do it. The sexual ethic of the Apostle Paul Not this one. was the product of a very... This isn't it, apparently. It's the one where I'm in the tie. The tie one. You see, they don't have titles, so we have to identify them by the clothing. <laughs> okay. Fortunately, you change you your wardrobe question? frequently. Is... Nope. It's the third one. The great news is we only have three. This is <laughs> <laughs> Is it that middle one? Maybe? It is not the middle one. That one's about Ashura, so that's I the, don't That's have the it. one. No, oh, that's, that is the one. Yeah, that's the most. That's the one that's gotten the most views so far on my channel. Oh, okay. Oh, I yeah. So wait, maybe we'll wait and go ahead. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to actually get to that here okay. in a second. So if we play your favorite, because we asked for your personal favorite as okay, well. Okay. Yeah. So that was. Is, the that, first is this one. your favorite? No, I think my. I think the first one is my favorite. Got okay, it. let's go back to the first one. Everybody, the sexual ethic then... of the Apostle Paul. Sorry, did you want to introduce it? Or... Oh, uh, I was just going to say uh, this was was something that uh, I thought would uh, uh, would I don't know be kind of incisive would be something that would get under a lot of people's skin, and and that's exactly what happened. So, uh, mission accomplished. <laughs> Hey, everybody. The sexual ethic of the Apostle Paul was the product of a very specific set of social circumstances that don't exist anymore. Uh, this was a dogmatically celibate man who thought all people should be celibate and that you should only get married in order to keep down your sexual urges if you did not have the discipline for celibacy. Uh, he also thought that the second coming was going to be so quick that there was no time for children, so procreation played no role in this sexual ethic. Obviously, other non-normative sexual acts and relationships were going to be even less acceptable. We are happy to jettison aspects of Paul's ethical framework that don't serve us anymore, such as, for instance, slavery. There's no reason to think his sexual ethic is at all relevant today. The only reason to assert it is because it serves our structuring of power and our identity politics. What was it about? That... Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was just saying, I, I think it's easy. I don't see any problem with it. <laughs> why is it that you thought that was going to get under people's skin? You said it did. So why did it? And what was the upshot of this particular video? So I had been addressing a number of different claims about uh, people who were asserting that, uh, you know, the, the Bible prohibits uh, sex before marriage, the Bible prohibits homosexuality, the Bible prohibits this, that, and the other thing. And when you look closely at it, these are pretty limited portions of the Bible, and they're based on, overwhelmingly, Paul or somebody else who was a dogmatically celibate author. You see this uh, a couple of times in Matthew and in Luke as well. Um, 
But when you go look at Paul, you see this guy thought the end was coming soon. And so you shouldn't be having kids because there's no time for that. And uh, you should only be having sex uh, in a holy and honorable way, not with the passion of desire, like the Gentiles who don't know God. Uh, so in other words, it needs to be prophylactic. It needs to be rare. It needs to be without passion just to keep down the urges. Uh, and so it sounds a little bit like a little factory talk. <laughs> something like that, only it extends to all sex. Um, right. And when you kind of have a, a grasp of of who this dude is, who is lecturing us about sexual ethics. It's like, none of you would accept anything else he says, but you're latching on to this one thing. You don't know what's motivating it. You don't know what social hierarchies of domination, of penetration, of all these other things of agency uh, are governing why they're feeling the way they're feeling about these issues. All you're doing is saying, well, Paul said no, so we have to create legislation to keep you from being able to do those things. And it's it's negotiating with the text. Now, I've, I've said repeatedly that negotiating with the Bible is an inevitability. Nobody can escape having to negotiate with the text. But when you're when Paul says a dozen things and you just totally ignore 11 of them, we don't care about that. We care about the one and you don't even know where the one's coming from. All you care about is how it functions as a rhetorical bludgeon in your hands then you're not trying to follow Jesus. You're just trying to structure power. Um, you're just Ooh. trying to serve the interests of your own identity politics. And opposition to LGBTQ plus rights has been a central identity marker of conservative Christianity for generations and will continue to be until people grow up and realize the only reason we hold on to this is because we've decided to, because it serves our identity politics. I was going to say that some time ago uh, when I read 1 Corinthians 7, and of course that's where this main statement by Paul is embedded, it didn't take a rocket scientist, which I'm not, my dad was, but not me, to realize even in King James English, I could parse out the fact that he's talking about a worldview in which he believes Jesus is coming back any day now, and that's what's informing his views on sex and marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was, go, ahead, go ahead if you want to respond to that. I was actually going to follow up, piggyback on what you just said, which is right. here we are in the last days, according to the LDS church, right? Like there's this idea that it's the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. And so much of how we frame our theology is also in awareness that Jesus could come back any day. And I think we're dealing with in this moment we're starting to let go of that grip and say, maybe he doesn't come back for another 5,000 years or 10,000 years. And that seems to also be playing a part in how the LDS church frames things. And I'm just curious, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that, I guess, essentially. Yeah. I, I think we've now, uh, again, we're, we're negotiating this. Um, We've been through a number of different iterations of how this is all unfolding since Joseph Smith, at least within the Latter-day Saint tradition within Mormonism. And so every every few generations, we kind of uh, reset the the table and we talk, you know, our eschatology uh, is reoriented and renegotiated because the end has not yet come. Uh, Jesus and, keeps not coming. Yeah, for for some reason. Um, and so, but 
in order to keep all these texts meaningful to us, the text that Joseph Smith has, uh, has written, the book of Revelation, uh, a lot, even within Matthew and, and Mark, uh, there is kind of a, a, an urgency to the eschatology. Mark 13 in order and Matthew 24. Yeah. And, and then when you get into the, the pseudo-Pauline epistles that are being written later after Paul's long right. dead, and people are like, it turns out it's going to be a little longer than we thought. That's when they start talking about, oh, well, you know what? It turns out a falling away has to happen first. Second oh, the, the man of sin has got to be revealed. And, and, and we have these renegotiations in antiquity within the Bible. Um, and so in order for these texts to remain relevant, we have got to understand that we're in that position, that, that you know, we're in the 11th hour. Because if we say, you know, if we... If we it, somehow found out one day oh we know exactly when jesus is coming back it's going to be in a thousand years suddenly that doesn't matter to us and so okay all of this stuff we don't have to worry about anymore we can just focus on the here and now we can focus mm -hmm. on making sure people have uh clean water to drink to that people are not being disproportionately targeted and killed by the police uh we can focus on fixing things here and uh, then suddenly it tears down a lot of power structures. And there's plenty makes, of money to do that too. Yeah. And there's uh, a lot there. It, it makes a lot of the, the texts unusable. And uh, so uh, I interviewed uh, Bart Ehrman last week uh, on, on my new podcast. Ooh, good on you. Um, and he tell us about your podcast in terms of what's the name? Where can people find it? Uh, yeah, it's called the Data Over Dogma podcast, and it is on all the the uh, podcast hosting platforms, so Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, all the other ones. Uh, we're getting our website up and running here shortly, but uh, we're also on YouTube, uh, youtube.com forward slash at Data Over Dogma. Uh, we had two episodes post so far, um, and I'm, I'm, I don't really know anything about numbers so i don't even know I, I understand that we're doing well but i don't know how to uh compare it to what uh how we should be doing or whatever but uh but i've in, enjoyed it quite a bit so far but uh we had bart ehrman on he's got a new book called armageddon that is about uh the book of revelation about the the end times and uh we had a great discussion about how uh in early christianity they didn't look at revelation and think oh this is happening soon they looked at Revelation and read it as, oh, this is what happened when Jesus was on the earth. Uh, and we talked about some of the problems with Revelation, why many early Christians hated it, uh, and why... Uh, it didn't also, make all the early lists, did it? No, it didn't. It's not until the 4th century uh, and then the 5th century that it starts being more regularly added. And um, Bart did his, uh, uh, his PhD on textual criticism and the canon and things like that. So I was like... You're probably one of the best people to ask about this. Why did it ultimately get included? And uh, and he said, you know, it had to do with the Christological controversies in the in the fourth and fifth century, because uh, in the book of Revelation, and, and I immediately was like, ah, first and the last, Alpha and Omega. Uh, I hear that a lot. Uh, Jesus identifies as the first and the last, as the Alpha and the Omega, and those are titles that are also attributed to God in the book. And so Revelation is another. Um, check mark that can be added to the side uh, of Jesus is God. So basically it strengthens 
the anti-Aryan position within those early Christological debates. And so that may be one of the uh, deciding factors in folks like Athanasius and folks like others deciding to keep the book of Revelation, despite how wildly it conflicted with the the gospel presented in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, uh, and the fact that anybody who knows Greek can see that the book of Revelation is not written by the same person who wrote the gospel of John or the epistles of John. But uh, yeah, that's, that's another text where uh, we want to see ourselves in the text. We want to relate to it. We want it to resonate with us. But this is a piece of apocalyptic literature that is saying we're being oppressed. These giant nations around us are killing us. And it's a, it's fantasizing about how we're going to turn the tables on them. We're going to mm-hmm. peel. We're going to look under the hood of the universe where God is in control and God is going to make us the ones who kill them. And God is going to make us the ones who take all of their goods and their resources and their food and, and their money. And, uh, and I, I brought up the fact that he talks, Bart in a book talks a little bit about domination and the relevance of that to the book of Revelation. But in order for us to see ourselves in that text, we need to be the victims of somebody who's oppressing us. But we're on the other side of the equation already um, and in terms of, you know, white conservative American Christians. We're not the victims of anything, but if we want to make ourselves the victims, we got to go out and we got to look for people who are oppressing us and we've got to make them Rome. We got to make them the beast. And so we come up with all these arguments for why uh, the LGBTQ plus folks are oppressing us or, um, you know, whoever the uh, conservative Christians want to make the enemy. And, uh, and so we want to turn the tables on them, which ultimately means we're going to further oppress the people who are already uh, minoritized and marginalized and oppressed in our society. And so it's harmful when we take these things that were not written for us. Uh, like, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I keep thinking of FUBU. I don't know if any of you recall those pants from the nineties. FUBU. Uh, F- I must have missed Fubu. that bad. For us by us. For us by us. Yeah. These texts were for the black community. Yeah. I remember parachute pants, if that counts. <laughs> These texts were uh, not for us, not by us. And when we try to make them for us and by us, uh, it causes quite a bit of harm. Mm. And sorry about the rant. Oh, no, that's okay. By the way, <laughs> I understand that next conference, President Nelson will be announcing a new revelation pertaining to the name of the church. It's not going to be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints anymore. It's now going to be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Latter-day Saints. <laughs> Because we're getting closer. It's like this this uh, this curve that approaches but never quite <laughs> comes to. Is that what a hyperbolic curve? I can he, never remember he, what it's called. He said the parabolic maybe, or hyperbolic. He said not too long ago. I mean, it was President Nelson a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago. He said we were in the 11th and a half hour. Like it's that much closer. And so, um, again, this idea that we've set ourselves up that Jesus has to come back within a certain amount of time. At the worst, I think you could say a thousand years. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then you have to come up with a new game plan. And and I think, you know, for most people, this is not uh, this is nothing sinister. Uh, they're not saying I want to, um, you know, misrepresent the text because I want to uh, hurt people. It's people who want the text to be meaningful to them. They believe that these texts are inspired. And so in some sense should be meaningful to them. Unfortunately, the quickest and the easiest and the most widespread and common way to make it meaningful is to put us in in their position and with texts like the book of revelation that 
generally results in harm. So I think if we can be more self-critical about how we generate meaning and generate utility with the scriptures. Uh, we don't have to abandon the notion that there is something meaningful in there, but I think we have to be a lot more thoughtful about it and we have to recognize the power asymmetries that are in play. Dan, if it's okay with you, can we move into the section of the program now where I had talked with you about structuring this in the following way, talking about your background in Bible studies mm -hmm. and looking at insights that you have uh, obtained and podcasted about or TikToked about that are divided into three on one side and three on the other. The first three being those insights from Bible studies that Latter-day Saints are the most glad to hear, that are the most faith-affirming to them. Mm -hmm. And then we'll move to the other three on the other side of that coin, the three things that Latter-day Saints like to hear the least. <laughs> Do you have that in front of you as far as yeah. the outline? The first thing we're going to start with, Pat, oh, all right, number one, then I'll let you introduce it. Three things Mormons like most. Right, so number one, uh, and uh, my... Doc, the, my dissertation supervisor, Professor Francesca Stavrakopoulou, recently published a book on this, God and Anatomy. Uh, this is a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. Um, but the first thing that I think a lot of Latter-day Saints uh, appreciate hearing is, is a consensus view among scholars is that throughout the entire history of the Bible, God was conceptualized as uh, someone who was human-sized, human-shaped, uh, and had a corporeal anthropomorphic body, a physical body. Uh, and this is something that was largely considered uh, pretty heretical in Joseph Smith's day when this idea was, was first promoted. But uh, you know, as we look deeper into what was going on prior to, uh, I would say, the second, third, fourth centuries CE, this was pretty normative. This was how the biblical authors all thought about God. And so that's one thing that I think a lot of Latter-day Saints uh, like hearing. And, um, you know, I, I think if we look more deeply into it, we're going to find that it diverges from how we like to think about God as having a body. But uh, in general terms, yeah, that's uh, that's one that uh, we don't need the Texas sharpshooter for. That's something that uh, is, a, I would say, not a restoration, but at least uh, is something that was found in uh, ancient Judaism and ancient Christianity. So, yeah, and as far as Joseph Smith declaring that his role was to take things that were true that had been given by God to his people and had been lost— and to restore them again, this seems to fit nicely within that paradigm. Yeah, I, I think so. And and there are, you know, there are different uh, motivations for this thinking anciently, and there are different influences on on Joseph Smith. I think there there's an argument to make that there was some uh, some philosophical kind of argumentation that was that was going on there. I don't know how well he would have understood it. But uh, yeah, the, the God of the Bible is one that has uh, flesh and bone and, uh, and all the working parts, including if you, uh, if you check out Francesca's book. Does she have the, the hypocephalus from facsimile too in the book of Abraham there, <laughs> the God of men? She does not, uh, but she does have an entire section, um, section uh, or part two is called genitals. And so she's got multiple chapters on divine genitals. Um, so it's a. Uh, Are there I any think, pictures in that book? So I did several of the illustrations for this book. Did you really? Um, yeah. Um, and I'm trying to remember. I'm 
I cannot remember drawing a penis. Okay, wait, wait. You're not book. kidding. You I'm actually not... did. You did yes. pictures. Yes. Oh um, wow. I uh, so like I said, I used to want to be a comic book artist. I've done uh, every now and then I'll do charcoal portraits for people on the side. I did the uh, cartoon caption contest for Biblical Archaeology Review for two years while my friend Bob Cargill was the editor in chief. Uh, and then when they got rid of him, I, I, uh, they asked me to stay on and I said, nah. Um, so yeah, I, I did all the illustrations for my own book and, um, Francesca said, Hey, I've got a handful of illustrations. I, I can't conveniently get licensed. Will you just draw these things for me? So I said, sure. Um, and she, she floated some pounds my way. Uh, she's over in the UK. <laughs> Let's see. No, I don't. If I drew... So I did this picture of, um, let's see if uh, you can see it on there. So this is from Kuntiladaj Rood. And this is a picture of an Asherah tree with some animals, some ibexes feeding on either side of it. And it's a part of a, a broken, what's called a pithos or um, a clay, a large clay jar. Um, and that is in the chapter, chapter eight, divine sex. But um there's another. By the way, can I ask you this? And I'm yes, not sir. actually not being uh, facetious here. Okay. When you first showed me that, maybe it's because you had led me to talk about genitals, but I mean, I was getting the impression that was sort of like the female reproductive anatomy. Is that um, what it looks like to you? Uh, I, I think there's a there's a way to to think of it that way, but it's actually a stylized date palm, hmm. and so it's it's representative of something that um, that reproduces. That is, it's a symbol of fertility. Uh, but it, I, I don't think that it was intended to, uh, to represent, uh, female anatomy. No, I, A little parallelomania. So, oh, there is. Here we go. This is the good stuff, folks. Get the kids so, out of the room. <laughs> uh, a permanent erection was the iconographic hallmark of both the Egyptian god Min and a form of the creator god Amun Ray. So there's Ooh, a, I, a I don't think true. you'll be able to see it clearly there. So that's my drawing up here of something different. Uh, and then we've got a photograph of men. So um, isn't Christianity kind of growing up in the midst of other traditions? I'm, I'm in the middle of watching the Vikings TV show, which takes place mm -hmm. in like the 800s. And you've got Ragna Lodbrook, who's this famous Viking. And, uh, you know, the Viking gods are, you know, Zeus and all the, you know, Hercules. All They, they also seem to be indicating some degree of body and passions, uh, it seems as though Christianity very much is growing up alongside other faith traditions that also have corporeal gods who mm -hmm. are subject to their passions. And I'm just curious if that, that seems, it's easy to say like it's a bullseye for Mormonism. And I don't think you're doing that. I think you're just saying like, here's a similarity that Latter-day yeah, Saints like, but I, would you agree that Mormonism, not Mormonism, but Christianity is very much in the realm of other religions that also have corporeal gods right next to it? Yeah, and, and they're inheriting a tradition that has a corporeal God. And so they're having to, uh, but Christianity is also growing up uh, and they're playing on the same playground as uh, Platonic philosophers and uh, Pythagorean and Stoic philosophers. And so they're being heavily influenced by that. And a lot of people don't like acknowledging that. Uh, even anciently, you have the whole what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem claim, a whole heck of a lot. Um, Dan Peterson and, likes that line, I understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, a lot of what develops within 
the uh, apologetic discourse in early Christianity. So the apologists uh, are kind of taking off in the middle of the second century CE, and their job is uh, to some degree to try to intellectualize, philosophize the gospel in order to make it palatable for the Greco-Roman intelligentsia. They were, yeah, they were making it respectable for the smart folks, right. the educated and, people. And so part of that was adopting and assimilating to a lot of these Platonic ideas that, uh, you know, the divine and the transcendent was opposed to the flesh. And so Paul is very much like that. Oh, it's not a fleshly body. It's a spiritual body. And this is this is reflecting uh, these these Greco-Roman philosophical frameworks. And so Christianity's rejection of the corporeality of God is a product of the influx of those ideas, which is and it doesn't happen within Judaism until you get the philosophical uh kind of uh, until we get the philosophical turn within medieval Judaism. So it's like Maimonides and those where Judaism finally says, okay, we're doing away with, with the corporeal deity when the philosophers kind of take over. And there was even a Latter-day Saint um, published a great article in, I think it was Harvard Theological Review some 30 years ago. Uh, David Paulson, I think his name was. Uh, right. Augustine and... About the Godhead. Augustine and somebody as reluctant witnesses to a corporeal deity or something like that. Yes. I, I don't remember the title exactly, but points out that origin, origin and, and Augustine as reluctant witnesses. But he points out origin says, uh, you know, some Christians think God has a body, but uh, we don't because the philosophers despise that. Uh, and there's a story of uh, a Christian leader going out to uh, a monk who lives in the desert in Egypt who refuses to, uh, accept an incorporeal deity and he kind of you know philosophically bashes him over the head and finally the monk has to give up this belief and he cries out in anguish and says uh, i have no one to whom to pray anymore i don't know who it is i'm praying to anymore uh and so it's it's a it was a struggle it wasn't just a, a peaceful transition it was something that uh that took these apologists saying we know better and and this is the way things are going to go and and it is very much an assimilation of greco-roman philosophical thought we wouldn't have plato if we didn't have christians we wouldn't have philo if we didn't have christians because they're the reason all these texts were preserved and were popularized um now of course you get into the middle ages and then you have to have islam to bring them back into uh, the fold for the Renaissance by translating all these things into Arabic and then having them translated into Latin. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a twisted road. And I don't even know what the topic is right now, but... Um... Right now, it's all about you, baby. <laughs> and so here's... We're, we're free-forming right now. This is performance <laughs> art. We've left the outline far behind. I'm, I'm sorry to, uh, to do that, but... Uh... It's just I, I yeah, like some natural that. questions kind of come this up. This is a Liahona podcast as opposed to an Iron Rod <laughs> podcast. That's that's right in my wheelhouse then. So I wanted to ask you, it's fascinating to me that what you describe is happening in the second century of Christianity. I see happening in the second century of Mormonism with people like Terrell Givens, who appear to be focused on the idea with their writings and their presentations of taking Mormonism and making it respectable to the educated classes. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I think, I think that's, I can, I can see that happening. I, 
I think there's a degree to which some of the folks who are trying to mainstream Mormonism are also trying to hitch its wagon to evangelical and other Christians. It's not just about making it intellectually respectable, but it's about kind of joining the adult table of Christianity in, in America. I Now, I don't know Terrell Givens' writings well. I don't know if... Um, if he's going in that direction or if it is just an attempt to uh, make Mormonism a little more intellectually mature. But well, I, it I certainly think... quotes from other like um, earlier, obviously non-Mormon Christian authors and thinkers and incorporates those into his writings in support of Mormonism. So I think you're right. I do see him additionally trying to make Mormonism part of this long stream 2000 year Christian narrative. Yeah. And I, I, at least on the political side, I think we've been doing that since the second quarter of the 20th century. We've been trying to, um, we've been trying to be a part of that movement and gain access to the power and the resources there. Um, and, but, th but I think this is an inevitability. There's a book called Translating the Message by a scholar named Laman Sana. And um, it's about Bible translation. And I, and I believe the subtitle is the missionary impact on culture. And it, it uses as case studies uh, some of the controversies that went on in Bible translation in the Philippines and in Africa. But one of the things that he does in the book is uh, he talks about religions as having three different phases. And I'm, I'm, I forget all the names of these phases, but the first one he called quarantine. And that's where you're isolated and you're insulated and every worst on our own, leave us alone. We're going to do our own thing. And that was Mormonism when it was heading out to, to Utah. And then you have a um, syncretistic phase, which is where you're kind of reaching out and you're like, okay, we're going to go into the culture. We're going to uh, try to influence the culture. We've got to let our walls down and send out missionaries. And I would say that we're, in that phase right now. And then the final phase, the most mature phase, I think he called uh, reform. And that is where you become integrated into the culture and the culture influences the, the movement. And so some of the more mature traditions within Judaism, within Christianity, uh, some of those movements are already in the reform phase. And uh, some of them are still in the, uh, I think he called it the syncretism or syncretistic phase. And, you know, we got some folks, particularly within fundamentalist movements that are still in the quarantine phase. And uh, when I was at, when, you've, you've heard the phrase holy envy before, right? Oh, right. Kirster Stendhal? Yeah. So I would say when I was at Oxford, I was at the Oxford Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies. And they kept kosher uh, on the grounds, and it was uh, a Jewish studies program, and, and the people administering it were, were overwhelmingly Jewish. And I, I got to say, I feel some holy envy for a tradition that allows so much variation and flexibility. And there are, uh, there are conservative and even fundamental, fundamentalist movements within Judaism, but uh, you know, they don't give scholars a hard time. Uh, they let them do what they want to do, and there's they're fully in the reform phase. And so, if it if it takes intellectualizing Mormonism more um, to for Mormonism to um, you know move through the awkward puberty stage and get into adulthood, 
Uh, I'm all for it, uh, but I just want to see it freed from some of the conservatism and uh, some of the other movements that I think are going in a bad direction. Wow. Well, this is fascinating. And I could go on like this all night, like a conversation. Okay. <laughs> However, by the way, we've gone number one. We've gotten through number one. Okay. And that was God having a body. Right. That looks like a guy. And that's one thing that Mormons find faith affirming from Bible studies. By the way, I did recall what it was when I was thinking about uh, Nigren's experiment. It's Dr. Heidegger's experiment. Uh, mm. I did a synapse thing that misfired um, by Nathaniel Hawthorne. So we're now to number two. Number two on the list of things from Bible studies that Mormons find faith affirming. What is that, Dan? So I'm going to point to Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, which talks about the Most High dividing up the nations according to the number of the children of God with Adonai or Jehovah receiving uh, the nation of Israel as their share of the inheritance. So the idea that there was a time when Jehovah was a son of a higher deity. There was a God the Father and there was Jehovah. Is this uh, where they fudge the text a little bit? Yeah, so the Masoretic Make it text... Sons of Adam. Uh, sons of Israel is okay. what the Masoretic text read. But we scholars saw the Septuagint that had rendered angels of God, and we knew from a couple of other passages that the Septuagint translators liked to render children of God as angels of God. And so we hypothesized, not me, this was uh, generations ago, that this, the, the original text may have read children of God. And then we found a manuscript uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, 4Q Deuteronomy J, which reads precisely that, B'nai Elohim, children of God. And so that confirmed that hypothesis. So yes, that has been fudged a, a, a little bit. And um, well, let me just say, I'm so sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but just the very fact from Bible studies, when we find out that the text has been fudged over time in order to accord with certain religious sensibilities, that alone is faith affirming, or at least it was to me 15 years ago when I was studying this and still had a faith to affirm about... Um, what Joseph Smith said had happened with the Bible, mm -hmm. that there were priests who either intentionally or unintentionally were changing things and monkeying with things, taking things out, putting them in. And this appears to uh, show that he was correct in that. Yeah. Uh, I And, you know, there's a degree to which Joseph Smith is doing the same thing <laughs> when we get into... <laughs> Um, when we get into the, the Joseph Smith revision of the Bible, which is also something that happened anciently, you know, with the Targumim, with uh, a genre that we used to call rewritten Bible. We don't do it much anymore, but uh, other apocalyptic texts are retelling the same stories. But in order to keep things interesting, in order to make things a little more harmonized, uh, they're tweaking things here and there. They're adding things. They're expounding on this. They're getting rid of that. And so Joseph Smith's translation is very much in keeping with tradition that goes back thousands of years. Going back to where I interrupted you, Deuteronomy, was it 32, 8, and 9? 32, 8, and 9. Go ahead, yeah. please. So, um, so this reflects an earlier uh, idea of uh, the divine council, which is something that we that scholars have tried to reconstruct from some of the literature that was discovered at Ugarit, which has a lot of parallels with uh, the divine uh, and its hierarchies in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, we have places where the, for instance, the book of Isaiah is directly quoting something from a Ugaritic text. So in Isaiah 27, one, we've got this statement in that day, 
the Lord will punish Leviathan, the twisting serpent, uh, Leviathan, the wriggling serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, there's a uh, portion of the ball cycle uh, from around what is so around 500 years earlier, where it says Baal has killed Lotan, which is the Ugaritic cognate to the Hebrew Leviathan, the twisting serpent, the wriggling serpent, and then he calls him the coiled one with seven heads. But this is basically a quotation of a Ugaritic text that was dedicated to Baal. Uh, and so we're pretty confident that the Hebrew Bible is not making up their arrangement of the heavens ex nihilo, that in large part, this is drawing from a shared cultural matrix. Uh, and what we see in the Hebrew Bible is participating in that same shared cultural matrix. And so we can use, uh, I, what I say is it's, it's kind of like frog DNA in Jurassic Park. We're using Ugaritic text to kind of carefully fill in some of the gaps in our understanding of the heavens uh, in the Hebrew Bible. And so we can take the, our understanding of the divine council from Ugarit, and we can overlay it on the Bible and see where there are resonances, see where things line up, and use that to help us better understand the divine council. And in the earliest periods of Israel, El slash Elyon slash Shaddai was probably the patriarchal high deity who was this elderly, benevolent, uh, <laughs> kind of uh, libidoed deity. And then they had uh, a second tier of deities, their offspring. And among them was a storm deity. Uh, and in the broader Northwest Semitic pantheon, this was Baal. But the storm deity is a youthful uh, warrior deity who is ferocious and whose uh, violence is, uh, we use the imagery of violent weather to represent their warrior status. And so we, see, we can see both of these divine profiles in the Hebrew Bible. One more commonly associated with earlier depictions of El slash Elyon slash Shaddai. And another uh, more commonly associated with Adonai. And so it seems like Adonai was a late transplant into the early Israelite pantheon as one of the B'nai Elohim, as one of the children of God. And then at some point along the way, El and Adonai were conflated and they became the one deity, Adonai Elohim, or the Lord God as it's traditionally translated uh, in English translations of the Bible. So if I'm understanding you, Bible studies tends to support Joseph Smith's claim about there being a council a divine council over which God the Father presides or presided at least at some point prior to uh, this earth. And we, we all know the story, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and there's some, we pull from Job where the sons of God shouted for joy at the foundation of, of the earth. And, and these would have been the, the second tier deities. And that's what we see in Genesis 6. Uh, and we see it at the beginning of Job, Job 1.6 and Job 1.2, where the, the children of God, the B'nai Elohim, come and, and strut before God on their throne. Uh, only there, Satan is among them. Yes. Well, we could go off on that, but I'm going to try and be disciplined <laughs> here. I'm going to be trying to be disciplined. And it was when um, I was looking at this uh, 10, 15, 15 years ago, actually closer to 18, uh, regardless about the second tier of deities, the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, which were 70 around in number, and they corresponded to the table of nations. Was that Genesis mm -hmm. 10, the table of nations? That's Genesis 10. and Where and they lay out all the different nations and the idea behind it, which is not readily apparent from 
a novice approaching the text, at least not to this novice as I approach the text, that those were the nations and each of the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, was assigned to be the God of each nation. And the God, the one God who was assigned to be the God of the nation of Israel was Yahweh. Is that correct? correct. Yeah. So in that in that time period, in the pre-exilic period, every nation had their own patron deity, and Israel's patron deity was Adonai. And Adonai's purview, their sovereignty, was limited to the nation of Israel uh, in terms of their earthly sovereignty. Uh, once the two of them were conflated, Adonai and El, they were god of gods and and you know ruled over the pantheon. But on Earth, Adonai's purview was limited to Israel, and so and we see this reflected in a number of ways. You weren't supposed to worship the deity of your homeland if you were outside your homeland, because they could only be worshipped on their own property. And so we have Naaman who comes down from Syria and is healed and says, now I know there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. And he wants to worship Adonai when he's back in Syria in the temple of his master. And so his solution is to take two cartloads of Israelite soil back home with him. So Is he that can why he does this. Yeah. So that's so he can be on Israelite soil in order to worship the deity who is only accessible on Israelite soil. It reminds um, me of the vampire mythology. <laughs> yeah, it's um, I, I don't know if that's uh, inspires it in, in any way, shape or form. Um, the vampire. Right. Um, right. It's mythology. probably just a coincidence, but still. But uh, and we see this in um, in David. Saul is pursuing David, and I don't know if you recall the story where Saul's asleep at night and on a, in a cave on one side, and he comes oh, no. in. Oh, was and, that the cave, or was it the sword and the garment? And so he he takes a bottle of water and his uh, sword or staff or something, and so David runs down the valley and up the other side, and then he's like, "Hey, wake up!" and wakes him up, and he's shouting at uh, I don't I don't remember if it's Abner. I think it's one of. No, it's not Abner. It's one of uh, Saul's guys, but Saul wakes up and, and Saul and David are shouting back and forth. And David says, your men are forcing me to worship other gods by depriving me of my share in the inheritance of Adonai. So we know Adonai's inheritance is the land of Israel, forcing him to worship other gods because they are pursuing him and they're about to push him outside of the territory of Israel where he will no longer be able to worship Adonai. He must worship the deity that is sovereign which in within whichever territory he's in mm. uh and so that also reflects this idea adonai is limited to the land of israel now when the judahites get exiled this is one of the great crises of early judaism we are outside the land we have this part of the psalm how can we sing the song of Adon of adonai in a foreign land so we need to find a way to access god's That's lamentations right yeah well, uh, that's that's in the Psalms, but the Lamentations are a similar theme. We right. are lamenting the loss of the temple, uh, the land. We can't access God. And so we have a few different solutions that come up. Ezekiel mobilizes the divine throne. The temple is destroyed, but now we have this vision where God's basically riding around on this mobile throne through the skies. And we got the Ophanim, the wheels, and we got the living beings and, and the platform. And then God's throne is on top of it. So he's mobilized the throne. And that's so that God can now leave the temple and travel over and visit their people in Babylon. Uh, and then I published an article in 2018 in the Journal of Biblical Literature arguing that this is what Psalm 82 is doing, where God stands in the uh, in the midst of the divine council and judges among the gods. And 
basically condemns them to mortality for allowing the foundations of the earth to be rocked, uh, showing favoritism to the wicked, neglecting the poor and the needy. And my argument is that this, is, this all reflects the social upheaval of exile. And then God condemns them to mortality. And then in the last verse, the psalmist says, rise up, O God, you will inherit all nations. Basically saying your inheritance used to be Israel. We've just deposed the patron deities of all the other nations. So now you are inheriting all nations. You are now the patron deity over all nations. You have been universalized. Now people in Egypt, people in Babylon, people wherever can access the God of Israel. And so I argue that's the universalization of Adonai there in Psalm 82 taking place in the post-exilic period. So I'm, you've got me ranting again. You got me monologuing again. Um, Frozone. <laughs> well, not, not Frozone, it's Syndrome. No, is it? Yeah, yeah. Frozone is uh, Samuel I thought he was the one who said the character. line about the monologuing. Yeah, that was syndrome when uh, when he, he freezes him and he's like, you got me monologue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Now we're doing Incredibles. But by the way, <laughs> I understand also that part of the cosmic worldview prior to the universalization of Israel's God was that when you went to battle with another nation, the respective gods also went to battle with each other in heaven. Mm -hmm. And whichever god won kind of determined who won down here on earth. Is that correct? So it, it was basically a rationalization of whether you won or lost. So uh, if you won, it meant your god defeated the other nation's god. If you lost, it could mean that your God was defeated by the other nation's God, but there are other ways to do it. So the Mesha inscription from the mid ninth century BCE, um, the Israelites had actually subjugated Moab. Moab was under vassalage to Israel. Uh, they threw off this vassalage when Mesha came to power. And Mesha writes the, the Mesha inscription, it's in the Moabite stone. And this is the earliest reference to the deity Adonai that we know of uh, from around 840 BCE. And Mesha says that uh, Moab was allowed to be subjugated to Omri, to the Israelites, because Chemosh was angry with his land. So this rationalization is saying we didn't get defeated, but our God let the other nation dominate us, so subjugate us because our, because our God was angry with us because we did wrong. And this should sound familiar to anybody. It's Missouri all over again. <laughs> and and it's in the, the Hebrew Bible as well. Why did the, the 10 tribes in the north get carried off by Assyria? Well, they were worshiping Baal. They were doing bad things. So God used the Assyrians as an instrument to punish them and they got carted off. And that's the threat that we have up until exile. And, and so you could rationalize it in a bunch of different ways. But we have this fascinating story in 2 Kings 3 where it, it's talking about Moab throwing off Israelite vassalage. And they, uh, the ruler in, in uh, Israel creates a little coalition with Judah and Edom. And they go in and they get, first they get a promise from God through the prophet that they're going to uh, Moab will be delivered into your hands is, is what the prophecy says. And they go in and they're destroying all the towns and they have trapped the king in his capital city and the king can't escape. And they're about to take the city. And then it says the king took his son, his heir, and sacrificed him on the city wall 
and there was great fury against Israel and they packed up and left. And basically Moab is free. They successfully threw off vassalage. And the only rational way to interpret this without ginning up a bunch of imaginary scenarios that simply are not in evidence is to acknowledge that the sacrifice worked, that it catalyzed the intervention of the Moabite patron deity Chemosh, who drove off the invading force. And so Adonai was outside his purview. The uh, Adonai was uh, lost home court advantage and was in another deity's territory, was out of pocket and got defeated and they had to run back. And that, so that's that author's way of kind of very furtively, subtly saying, oh yeah, Moab got away, but you know, it's cause we didn't have home court advantage and, uh, wow. and we got beat. So yeah, the deity is, is a, is a tool to rationalize why your nation is either doing good or, or, or doing bad. It's just so interesting that Joseph Smith very naturally picked up on that in his <laughs> excuses for why it was that the saints could not establish Zion in Missouri. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's all throughout the, the scriptures. And it is one of the it's a way to protect the worldview while also trying to account for circumstances. And, and it's renegotiating uh, your relationship with the deity uh, and, you know, uh, whoever what people are doing wrong, what people are doing right. It's a way to uh, curate that whole relationship. Do you see any connection between what you just described going on in? Uh, Hebrew scripture time with also the New Testament, but how it manifests itself in a lot of fundamentalist Christianity with the entire idea of spiritual warfare. Um, I, I think to some degree, because in the, in the New Testament, so in, in the Hebrew Bible, this is being written by people who are uh, cultic authorities and intellectual authorities working for or adjacent to kings and people who are going out to battle and are trying to engage in conquest and sometimes winning and sometimes losing. The New Testament is written by people who have really very little uh, power at all. And so they kind of have to um, reorient the battle to something that is not temporal and physical because they're already, they're, they've already lost. So they reorient it to the spiritual. And this is something that Revelation is doing. Is, and, that, and that's what apocalyptic literature is doing. We're always um, you know, being beat on by these larger empires, whether it's Babylon or the Hellenistic empires or Rome. And so we're fantasizing about this other side of the coin. We peel back the, the fabric of the universe and we see the sometimes bizarre divine world where God is, is in control. God is pulling the levers and boy, they don't know what they have coming to them. And so that's a way to kind of fantasize about that spiritual warfare and go, Ooh, they're going to get it. And, um, and in a video that I published today, yes, I, I published recently uh, about revelation uh, I suggested that this is probably the context for the development of the concept of hell. This is people who are being oppressed by gigantic violent empires led by uh, God men who see no uh, consequences for anything that they do. And so I would argue that hell is these people fantasizing about them getting what's coming to them. It's not going to be in this life. 
boy, I hope it's in the next life. And then the concept is, is developed uh, as the, uh, you know, as the lines that get drawn around who's right and who's wrong kind of restrict around you and you have to start sending people who are closer and closer to your circumstances to hell with the the emperors and uh you know the most wicked people on the earth and so hell becomes something that it probably was never intended to be it was probably intended to be kind of a therapy for uh people who are being stomped on by larger empires for them to imagine that they're going to get theirs one day any truth to the idea that uh, the idea of the fiery burning brimstone hell not appearing in the Hebrew scriptures and being adopted by the Jews, probably from the Persians and then showing up in the new Testament as part of the Jewish belief that had been adopted from the Persians. So, um, I, I don't know that it's as simple as a borrowing from the Persians. I think there was probably influence, uh, from the Zoroastrian end of things, particularly the dualism that was going on there. But I think the idea of hell probably more directly can be attributed to the influence of Greco-Roman ideas about underworld and hell and things like that. But it seems to be, we have two passages that scholars have argued are our earliest hints at a proto-concept of hell. One is the very last verse of Isaiah, which talks about the the worm that uh, the fire that is not quenched and the worm that dieth not. And then there's mm -hmm. another one in Daniel 12, which says something very similar. By the um, way, the last verse of Isaiah, you mean 66? Uh, I believe so, yeah. So that would be Tridero Isaiah, possibly? Yes. From the end of the exile? Uh, yes. Exile? Yeah. So we're, we're getting into the Greco-Roman period. Right. And Daniel, of course, being very, very late. The second century, maybe? Uh, middle CE? of the second century, 160s CE. Um, and so these are the the very latest texts in all the Hebrew Bible, and they're starting to point in the direction of what we see developing more clearly in some of the other Greco-Roman period literature, the Enochic literature, for instance. Uh, some of the some of the uh, apocryphal literature talks about it as well. We see it in Josephus. We see it in the Sibylline oracles. We see it in places like that, some of the early Christian apocalypses. So, so basically, this idea that uh, those really super bad people are getting what's coming to them in the afterlife gets further developed. Uh, and by the time we get to the New Testament, there are basically three different concepts of punishment in the afterlife. We've got annihilationism, we've got temporary torment followed by annihilationism, and we've got eternal conscious torment. And we actually see all three in the New Testament to some degree or another. Paul never talks about them at all. But in the Gospels, we see uh, all three of them reflected in, in one way or another. So it seems like the idea is still developing. It's still percolating. Uh, but we do see some hints at it in the New Testament that are being influenced by some of this Greco-Roman period Jewish literature. And it's really in uh, the early Christian literature and particularly in the medieval period with, uh, you know, Dante's Inferno and other stuff like that, that a lot of the imagery that we now associate uh, with hell is, is embedded. Um, and so, yeah, it's a long history of development, but there are folks who talk about uh, the Valley of Hinnom, Gay Hinnom, uh, Gehenna, uh, which is what we see in uh, one of the words that's translated hell in the New Testament. Some people say, well, no, that's that's not the spiritual realm. It's an actual physical place on earth where they the burn uh, pile outside Jerusalem. So that that's the myth.
but there's absolutely no data that there was ever any such landfill or no way. No, that's, that comes from, uh, let's see. I think the earliest reference we have to that is about a thousand years after the new Testament. Um, and so, uh, Gehenna was the name of the place where uh, it became a symbol of punishment, divine punishment, particularly after death. Uh, and so in that Greco-Roman period, Jewish literature, Gehenna moves from uh, the valley where the king sacrificed children anciently, moved to this kind of uh, symbolic post-mortem punishment for the wicked. Um, and so by the New Testament, this is, this is Gehenna is this um, post-mortem uh, location for divine punishment, whether it's okay. temporary or eternal. So let me make sure I'm clear here. <laughs> there was no burn pile, as far as we know, outside of Jerusalem. In a, but is there a place called Gehenna next to Jerusalem? Yes, there's a valley that's just southwest of the city of David called the Valley of Hinnom. And it was Geben Hinnom in uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Valley of the Sun of Hinnom. And that is where, in the pre-exilic period, the kings were supposed to have uh, made their children to pass through the fire um and now they they say to moloch and and we understand moloch is this deity moloch is just a noun that refers to a type of offering that commonly referred to uh, a child sacrifice and so there was no deity named moloch most of these were probably child sacrifices offered to adonai but if we can if we can gin up a deity named Moloch, then we've got another target for the sacrifices, and and we've outsourced child sacrifice away from Adonai and onto another deity. Yeah, reflections of that ancient child sacrifice amongst the Jews, I think, being in the Abraham and Isaac story, the Akedah story, mm -hmm. and more famously in the whole Jesus Christ story. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a great discussion. Uh, John Levinson wrote a book called Oh no, I forgot the name of the book. The sacrifice something about the beloved son uh but it's talking about how jesus reflects this uh this ancient idea of child sacrifice uh and then um dr staver kapulu's uh dissertation which was later published uh was on uh child sacrifice and manasseh so she's worked on that a lot as well right and the idea being of course uh that the ancient jewish people practiced child sacrifice, kind of like a lot of other people did. Then later on, it became passe, out of fashion, not trendy. And so it was looked down on and with horror, which may have been some of the interpretation about why it was the Jews, uh, the Hebrews backed off when the, the king kills his own son. I've heard that interpretation, right? The horror. And yeah. They backed yeah. off from it. Yeah. Which, it, which is the, not a, not a reasonable interpretation of the statement there was great fury against Israel. Um, that's that's a pretty they're, they're fudging the, the interpretation there, there. But yeah, that's that's one way to account for it to say, oh, it was um, it's obviously the way I read in my institute <laughs> manual or whatever it was yeah. I was reading. Well, we're yeah. through two and um, let's, let's you know do something. Three. OK, let's do three, because once again, keeping track for those people at home. Number one, things Mormons like most about Bible scholarship is number one, the anthropomorphic and corporeal God. Number two, the idea that Jehovah is the son of the God, the father. Jehovah is the son of God, the father. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the grand council in heaven. And number three is going to be the idea of what? Uh, mother in heaven, heavenly mother, uh, also known as Asherah. So this is uh, something that has uh, 
become, I would say, has become a, a consensus view uh, among at least critical biblical scholars that's uh, in the pre-exilic period up to the 8th or the 7th century, depending on who you asked, God had a wife, and this wife was probably Asherah. And that was uh, the name of a famous book. Uh, was it by uh, Deaver? Yeah, Bill Deaver, uh, back in 2005, uh, Did God Have a Wife? Uh, folk Religion and something in ancient Israel. Uh, a lot of Bill's books were uh, were questions like that. <laughs> Who were the Israelites and where did they come from? Did God have a wife? And uh, that was how he uh, grabbed your attention in a, in a title. Uh, but there have been a handful of books written about Asherah, but uh, this is basically, uh, yeah, the idea that uh, there was a divine feminine in early Israel. And my point of view which I will argue with anyone about, but um, I don't know that it's the consensus view, but I think it's it's probably somewhat close to it, uh, is that this was pretty normative. It wasn't unilateral. Not everybody worshipped Asherah, but plenty of people worshipped Asherah, and there was not really any formal widespread opposition to this. Uh, and then under Hezekiah, Sennacherib comes through and destroys most of the land of Israel and Judah. Uh, and destroys a lot of uh, temples and sacred spaces and cultic installations, except for Jerusalem. And so then we've got Jer the Jerusalem temple being the only real big uh, cultic site that was still operative. And so everybody has to go to Jerusalem if they want to worship. And the kings after Hezekiah are most likely trying to restore this worship that was going on at other temples. And then we get to Josiah, who I argue looks around and decides he kind of likes everybody having to come to Jerusalem, kind of like having all the money and all the resources and all the power. And so one day happens to find a text in the temple that says, oh, we've been doing this all wrong. It turns out the whole time we were only supposed to worship in Jerusalem and we're only supposed to worship Adonai. Uh, the Lord, our God, Adonai is one. So one manifestation of Adonai in the one temple uh, and only the one priesthood may curate the, that worship. Do you have any insight on where that book was hiding all that time and how it was he happened to stumble <laughs> on it? Maven, Maven has showed up. Yeah. Maven, yeah. what do you have I to say? I just wanted to say, I feel like, you know, you and Bill have gone through uh, some episodes trying to give the church ways, you know, within the handbook or within historical precedents to be able to change, especially like with the LGBTQ issues that they're facing. Um where you try to set things up for them in a way that's a, like a faith promoting a, a consistent way with the history of the church to bring about the, you know, the correct revelations that it really needs to. And I feel like the, you kind of missed out on this being one of them is just finding a book in the temple and just being like, <laughs> look, look, this book says this. And so we're going to do this now. It's, it's a strategy. It's a bold one, but I think it could work. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, there's uh, there's an argument to make that finding a book in the woods is uh, is very similar uh, to that. Right. Well, I see a similar thing going on with the church today. Now, I understand that back in um, this time of Josiah, King Josiah, that it ends up being limited to the the site of the temple where the sacrifices that are acceptable to God and the worship that's acceptable to him can be performed exclusively. And it gives him that control over it. Mm -hmm. Um the LDS Church, of course, does a similar thing with their temples, although they have more than one. I think they got about a million now since President Nelson 
took office, but it's a lot more than one. So, but you have to get your temple recommend. You have to present it. There's an entire structure and procedure to get in the temple. And the only reason that strikes me so much is that there's this Lori Vallow trial that's going on right now in Idaho. And the story being told by one of the witnesses that Chad and Lori go to the temple together. And then when no one's looking, they go off to this corner, not into a ceiling room because those are pretty well monitored, but into a corner in order to be sealed together forever in something that's not authorized by the temple, but it's happening in the same location. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, then there's the fundamentalist uh, Mormons who frequently have an altar maybe in a closet at their house where they, and they do the prayer circle and everything. And they replicate those, those ordinances that are supposed to be done exclusively in the temple. But what they're doing is they're violating that in a way that they think is okay, but in a way that's kind of given the finger to the church and their attempts to make it exclusively only be able to done, be done in the temple through the people that the church designates as having the authority to do it. Any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, it. Uh, who has control over sacred space and what kinds of things go on in, in sacred space is, is a big part of that structuring power. And so whether you've got to do that by claiming uh, you've had a revelation that was that was secret or that the leadership of the church, um, you know, secretly set somebody apart to do this or wrote a letter saying you're going to you're going to be our secret side channel uh, for all of this. There are a lot of different ways that people can try to arrogate the uh, the power and the authority to be able to uh, do these things and set themselves up as um, as parallel or replacement uh, powers. And, and we see this going on in the Bible itself. Uh, in the way these stories are told. So after Josiah, uh, well, during and after Josiah, the Deuteronomistic literature is taking shape where they're they're taking all these histories that came before and editing them and rewriting them and saying, oh, all these kings, they were awful. They were bad. They didn't walk after the Lord. And, you know, historically speaking, they were phenomenally successful leaders and Israel flourished under uh, some of these kings. But now they're being demonized in this historical memory so that the people who are in charge of that literature uh, are now able to say our way of doing things has always been the right way. We are now the ones in control. And you have um, the Deuteronomistic literature is, uh, is in part responsible for some of what's going on in Samuel and Kings. But then the Chronicler comes through and the Book of Chronicles is doing a very similar thing. It's saying that's not how it happened. It happened like this and telling many of the same right. stories over again. Right. I, I want to interrupt before we get too far because I feel like we're, we're already going further through the Bible. <laughs> so I just want to come back to Asherah just for this yeah. question. Um, someone was asking if it was a title or if it was a name where there are many wives. And then I didn't know if you wanted to get to some of the TikToks uh, that we had or if we passed that point or not. Oh, no, we'll get to it. Thank you for reminding me about that, Maven. So the question to you, Dan, about the Asherah being a title or a name, is she a wife or a consort, or is she really just kind of loose? Uh, well, this is a this is the name of uh, a deity uh, from that was known from uh, maybe as early as the Amorite kingdom gets worked into the Mesopotamian pantheon, and then is found. Uh, she goes by Athirat in the Ugaritic literature and Asherah in uh, Hebrew, and the name probably means something along the lines of. Uh, it could mean 
it could come from a verbal root that means to stride. And so it could be part of a larger title that may mean something like she who strides the sea or, or something like that. But any associations uh, from that etymological origin or were lost long ago. Uh, and so we don't know exactly what the name means, but yeah, this is the personal name of this female deity who was doing her own thing. And in the Ugaritic literature is even threatening L uh, talking about how she's going to have L's beard running with blood if he doesn't do what's um, what she wants him to do, which in, I think that particular instance is uh, have a palace built for ball or do something associated with ball's leadership. I don't remember exactly what it is. So she's going to pluck him by the beard. Oh, she's going to bash his face in so that his blood, uh, his beard runs <laughs> with blood. Yeah. So, um, she is, and and this is something in my interview with with Francesca, the second episode of my podcast, where uh, our our little teaser is where she says the uh, the fertility deities, goddesses uh, in the ancient world were just as much about warfare as they were about fertility, and that gets overlooked an awful lot. There are some of the ones who do the most damage uh, mm. in the other literature. Uh, the reason I, I said something, I'm sorry, Pardon? Maven. What? I just wanted to know if I could jump in on that um real quick just about female deities so when i went to the uk last year i uh the british museum has this whole uh oh, what's the word like display about female deities and goddesses and that was one thing that i noticed as i was going through was just the number of uh deities that i i think the women they always had these two sides there was um, this beautiful, this creation side, but a lot of it was also the dis destruction side. And, and really those two things really do go together a lot, I think. And that was one of the things that I felt as I was going through this exhibit of you know, cultures all over the world where they have, female can have like more than one personality trait. It was one of the things that kind of made me feel almost sad about what Mormonism does to us because it takes that part, because it's fierce. Like a lot of these women were like respected and feared for good reasons. And so Mormonism was just kind of really stripped that away from us to just be the docile, just be the the sweet and the, the cute and the helper and the, you know, whatever, and the nurturer, the mother, you know, and it's, and yeah, it's just taken the other side of us, this really powerful side. And I think it really is there. And I think that's why the church tries so hard and does so much to really keep us tamped down because uh, because when women are really passionate about something, they really go for it. So what we by lack in stature, you know, it's it, that passion can really drive. And so I think I think there's a reason why the church tries to just completely divest us a hundred percent away from that because it's we are powerful and it is scary to see that side. So it's just I don't know. I feel like it's been a side of me that's that's been clipped. And you know, there's times where it's it's right to be angry about things or it's right to be powerful. It's not always the right thing to be docile and nurturing. So anyway, that, that's my comment on that. Well, let me just go ahead and say that uh, the reason I brought up this idea about the consort, right? And I made an offhand comment about whether Asherah was just loose is because there is this idea that I had at least as a Mormon finding out about this, that when I find out that God has a wife then there's the whole idea about, okay, there's the eternal marriage, there's the temple regalia, there's the kneeling at the altar, there's the whole shebang, and she is his legally and lawfully wedded wife uh, in the Mormon sense. But actually, 
the reality is that she was more considered a consort. Is that correct? Is there any meaningful difference between that and a wife? Um, there are a couple of, there are two different theories about how these relationships were arranged. The one popularized by uh, Mark Smith is that this was based on the idea of the patriarchal household. So the household was ruled over by a patriarch and the patriarch had the, uh, their consort, their wife, their matriarch, who had their own roles as, as well that were distinct from uh, the patriarchs and in some ways were subordinate and other ways not so much. Uh, and so there is an argument that that is the conceptual framework undergirding the divine council in ancient Israel. The other one, which was popularized by a scholar named Lowell K. Handy, uh, which and I'm forgetting the name of his book, but he argued that it was uh, the Syro-Palestinian bureaucracy that was the conceptual framework. And so there's a king and a queen. And within that framework, they both have their own roles to play as well. So the the Israelite goddess absolutely had their own roles to play that were distinct from their relationship to the patriarchal high deity and they had their own priesthood they had their own worship they had their own cultic installations uh in and this fact, is the followers of asherah yeah yeah and so uh in fact some of the some of the artifacts that have been found in ancient israel are likely uh dedicated to Asherah. So there's one that's really famous that one of my favorite artifacts uh, is called the Tanakh cult stand, which is a uh, an incense stand that is about three feet high. And it has these, these registers, tiers, uh, and the bottom one shows uh, a, a nude woman holding the ears of two lions that are on the side. And so this is like the entryway to the temple. And so uh, what some scholars think and what I argue in, in my book, Adonai's Divine Images, is that this is vertically representing the uh, progression through the cultic site, the temple that would have been dedicated to Asherah. And so on the outside, you have the two lions there that are kind of the protective guardians of the entryway. And then the second tier has... Um, an opening in the center and then there are two cherubim on the edges. And though, so that was probably the actual doorway into the temple. And then the, the register above that has some kind of equid, some horse like thing with a, with a sun disc above it and some volutes coming off the side. And then um, some things that are representative of, of roof beams. And so that probably represented uh, what was at the center of the temple. And arguments have been made that this was dedicated to Adonai. But I, I think the argument is strongest that all of the symbols are associated with the feminine divine. And so this was probably a way to miniaturize uh, the cultic space that was dedicated to a female deity. And that opening was probably they probably set a divine image of some kind, like a, a pillar figurine or something in there so that you could see through the opening and see the uh, divine image, the little figurine in the center. And then there would be incense that would be lighted on top of it. Uh, so there's, they were worshiped in their own right. They had their own priesthood. They had their own cultic sites. So in many ways they functioned independently. And in the King James version, um, those are frequently associated with groves, correct? Right. So the, it happened. the word Asherah is translated groves in uh, the King James Version. 
which then cross-references with the symbolism of the tree. And I, I give Dan Peterson a lot of uh, heck on this show, but I do want to say that I think that the most impressive thing, at least to me, that he ever produced, and I'm talking to you now, Dan, Dan Peterson, <laughs> was your piece that came out, I think it was in the year 2000, so 23 years ago, about Nephi's Asherah, where he sees or at least tries to explicate this idea of Asherah and the consort of deity anciently among the Hebrews with what he is seeing in the text of Lehi's vision or Lehi's dream and Nephi's interpretation of the vision, specifically mm -hmm. in 1 Nephi chapter 11. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so trees are important symbols in uh worship of asherah oh you know what i forgot one of the registers <laughs> what i said there were three there were actually four so in between the opening and the, and the top one there's actually a a tree similar to the drawing i showed you from the book and there are similarly are ibexes or or um, caprids feeding on either side of it so that the representation of uh of the uh divine feminine and and trees were Usually temples were associated with trees because they indicated there was water, there was life, there was uh, some manner of fertility available at the site. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I, th I think it is a it's a fascinating argument that that uh, Dan posits in that paper. And I think it gives us a lot to think about in terms of our symbolism and the relationship of the Book of Mormon to this idea of the feminine divine. Uh, and, so and hopefully we see more research like this in the future. Some people have kind of step back from it, but uh, I would like to see more of this in the future. And are you one of those people who step back from it? No, not me. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to give Dan Peterson that. By the way, are you looking at your watch like George W. Bush did during that famous uh, debate? Oh, I, I keep getting uh, pinged on here. I, I'm getting texts. And so I just have to make sure that it's not my wife. Um. Okay, very good. So... If, if you need to, I know we talked about two hours. Your time is important. It's limited. We've got 15 minutes left. Okay. Um, how, how close are you going to hold us to that two hours? <laughs> um, I can, I can probably go. Uh, so are you in Pacific time? I am. Okay. So yeah, let's, I can go to for 23 more minutes. How's that sound? Okay. In 23 minutes, let me do this in 10 minutes. Can you take off the three things that Mormons hate the most about Bible studies <laughs> so that we can leave a little bit of time for people to call in and ask you what's on their mind? Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I um, forgot about that part. Why don't we, uh, why, number one, I would say is uh, source criticism of the Hebrew Bible, <clears throat> including, but not limited to, excuse me, I got I to gotta take a hit. <laughs> Absolutely. I've got my stopwatch here. I'll click go for 10 minutes, and then okay. I'll let you know when your 10 minutes is up. Okay, so the, the first you. one would be um, criticism, of, source criticism of the Pentateuch and the idea of Deutero and Trito Isaiah, which is not liked because it represents a direct threat to the Book of Mormon. And uh, this is one of the videos that I actually provided where I talk about this. Shall we, Do we have that maybe biggest challenges facing Latter-day Saint apologists these days? How can they account for the Book of Mormon as a translation while also confronting the indisputable fact that it quotes from biblical passages that were composed centuries after Lehi and his family left Jerusalem with the brass place? And even more challenging that it quotes directly from the King James Version 
of those passages, including some translation errors and um, idiosyncrasies unique to the King James Version. Uh, some scholars try to discount the documentary hypothesis or Deutero-Isaiah as a way to sidestep the challenge that is not ultimately proven to be successful. I don't think it can be. Uh, I think apologists are going to have to confront the fact that Joseph Smith played a role in the articulation of the text in some way, shape, or form. So I, I don't think Latter-day Saint scholarship has given this issue uh, adequate attention and has taken it seriously enough. Although there was a recent uh, book from, I think the series is called Book of Mormon Academy. Uh, what was it called? They Shall Be Joined Together as this ringing a bell. It's, uh, it's a book about the Bible in the Book of Mormon from uh, some, uh, some friends of mine down at BYU. And uh, there is a, the paper that discusses Deutero-Isaiah, uh, uh, the version of it I read anyway, uh, I don't know if it's the same as the published version, I thought was a significant step forward, took it far more seriously than we have in the past. And I hope that is a sign of good things to come for our engagement with that issue. So, and as I understand it, basically, if we're going to take Deutero-Isaiah seriously, and you don't even have to take it seriously. I mean, you've got the Sermon on the Mount from the New Testament, which presents the same problem, except perhaps in more stark relief. But if you're going to take Deutero-Isaiah seriously, then you're going to have to look at large segments of the Book of Mormon as not actually being a reflection of the record that Lehi took with him on the brass plates when they went into the wilderness. Yeah, I, I think we need a... Uh, Latter-day Saint scholars are going to have to come up with a more robust theory of Book of Mormon translation that can account for Joseph Smith playing a significant role in the articulation of the Book of Mormon. And um, I don't think we have one that's adequate. Very good. Isn't that made, isn't that made oh, more right. complicated by, let's take, for example, the Book of Moses, which I think includes significant overlap with the Book of Matthew and Luke. Um <clears throat> Some of the language used around like the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plains mm -hmm. seems to find its way into the Book of Mormon in ways that an ancient translation really doesn't leave any room for. So the right. problem is compounded by multiple angles, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like like I said in the video, there um, are other passages that are indisputably written much later, uh, and particularly from the New Testament that are appearing in parts of the Book of Mormon where they would not have been written. And there are also versions of that text that are very clearly deriving from the King James version. Uh, yeah. And so, I don't want to put you on the spot. I totally respect, you know, that angle. So, but I would say that when Bushman says like the book of Abraham is pseudopigrapha, mm -hmm. it seems like that really is, unless somebody comes up with some really cool trick out of a hat, that really seems like the direction we have to go to just, honor the data. Absolutely. I, in fact, I would, I would, uh, my preference isn't pseudepigrapha, but, uh, I would say Targum, not in the sense that it's a translation, but in the sense that it is a paraphrase that is expanding on, that is elaborating on, that is filling in gaps, that is correcting problems. I think Colby Townsend makes a wonderful case that Joseph Smith with the book of Moses and the book of Abraham is trying to renegotiate the creation narrative that Joseph and, Smith feels liberal ability to add in his own things 
to sort of correct an ancient record. Yeah. Yeah. He has the prophetic authority to be able to do that. And, uh, and so is, is, is not saying this is how it really was, but is saying this is how we should be thinking about it. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's taking this text and adapting it to a different set of circumstances, a different time, a different set of rhetorical needs and exigencies. And that's what happened with rewritten Bible. It's what happened with the Anarchic literature. It's what happened with the Targumim. So it's something that, um, that has a long pedigree. It's, uh, it's nothing new uh, coming from Joseph Smith. It's rationalized a little differently, but uh, it's, it's basically the same thing. So I, I think Bushman's Bushman's ideas is definitely on the right track, and I'm uh, at at some point I hope I have the time to tackle it more more directly because uh, I think there are some cool insights to be gained from how how they thought of it as a translation uh, in the early church. But so, um, time's running out. <laughs> I know. So number one is uh, things Mormons like least about Bible studies or right. scholarly Bible studies. Isaiah yes. and the Book of Mormon mm -hmm. and the issues related to that. Number two was the Deuteronomistic uh, reforms under Josiah, which you've already talked quite extensively about. But as mm -hmm. it impacts Book of Mormon translation, was there anything else you wanted to say about that? Um I, I think the way we think about the early history of Israel, the way we think about Deuteronomy and the relationship to um, any potential historical Moses, uh, we have to take into consideration that a lot of that was written uh, starting in the late 7th century BCE and written intentionally to overturn a lot of the aspects of ancient Israel that Mormons like, like having a bunch of temples, like God's wife. Uh, all these things uh, Josiah and the Deuteronomistic editors are trying to destroy. Uh, and so the text that we have in the Pentateuch now is largely a post-exilic production, or at least stories from earlier that are being filtered through a post-exilic filter uh, in order to serve that... their needs. So in that way, do you think it impacts our understanding of Book of Mormon translation? <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, a little water down the wrong tube. <clears throat> I, I think it impacts the way we try to reconstruct what the Book of Mormon is, what any brass plates that may have existed could have had on them, um, and how uh, we understand the resonances between what was supposed to predate a lot of this and um, what very clearly reflects uh 19th century king james version um articulation of the text and so it's another contrib contributor to the conclusion that joseph smith had to have played some kind of role in the articulation of uh the book of mormon as we have it okay if you want to take a, a minute to go ahead and settle <laughs> yourself i'll introduce the third one okay and, yeah i think uh, i'm okay Oh, okay. Then you go ahead and talk about the third one, because oh. it's kind of related to that, specifically yeah. as it relates to a certain famous couple in the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, we talk an awful lot about Adam and Eve, but the data uh, pretty strongly indicate that this was a tradition that was formulated along with a lot of the rest of the primeval history, so Genesis 1 through 11, sometime around the 8th, 7th, uh, 6th century BCE, and was not meant to be... Um, understood as as literal history but was probably part of an early uh temple liturgy liturgy excuse me something that would have been maybe performed in a new year's festival that took place at the temple as a means of kind of uh 
resetting the annual clock because time was thought of as cyclical as the 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 seasons uh, come around again you have to make sure everything is in place so that everything can be carried out successfully uh and so yeah i think uh i think the story of adam and eve comes much later in the history of israel than uh, a lot of latter-day saints want to think and um but i i think that also gives us new ways to think about uh worship in the temple as well so uh, I think it's a, it's a double-edged sword that way. Yeah, I think that the Mormonism that we have inherited from Joseph Smith is dependent upon the idea that Adam and Eve were actual people who really lived in a specific location, i.e. Missouri, and there was an actual Garden of Eden that they were actually cast out of, and they actually built a stone altar at which they actually worshipped. And you can still find that altar today because Joseph Smith identified it. So that early Mormonism very dependent upon it. And I think probably most people in the LDS church continue to have that idea that these are two very literal people who started the whole human race. However, I believe that the newest version of the endowment from just about a month ago um, puts language in it that softens that and actually starts talking about Adam and Eve and other things in the temple being purely symbolic. Um, yeah, as far as I understand it, it is, uh, references these things as symbolic representations, uh, the, the, what is presented therein. Yeah. And I think it used to say at the beginning of the endowment, this is figurative. And then that got removed. And then now again, they're starting to put that back in some way. Mm. The specific language in the original, or at least the one that I went through in 1979 is that the creation is purely figurative. The creation account is purely figurative insofar as the man and the woman are concerned. And I think that was probably a holdover from Brigham Young making <laughs> space for his Adam God theory. <laughs> Love it. That was, I think that was before my time. Oh, we're going there, are we? Okay. <laughs> well, remember, okay. I'm an adult convert to the church. <laughs> well, me too, if you count out of high school being adult. So... We, let's have whatever time we have left. Can we have people okay. call in and ask Dan any questions that people might have? This is a great yeah. opportunity for people to ask questions of a bona fide expert in Bible studies. Yep. Let me put on uh, Landon. Let's see if he's there. Landon, are you there? I'm here. Go ahead, my friend. You've got a question on the number 666. There, Landon. Yeah, my question, uh, Dan, uh, first off, I really appreciate the, uh, uh, the scholarship that you do, and I've enjoyed watching it. My question was regarding the number 666 uh, when we talked about revelations. Uh, can you go over a little bit about how that uh, generated? I've, I've always heard it's the name of the number of the beast and that mm -hmm. it actually means Nero. Is there truth to that? And can you uh, cover that? Yeah, thank you for the kind words, Landon, and, and for the question. I think that is the academic consensus. Uh, and there are two different versions of that number, which I think lends support to the fact that that is almost certainly a reference to Nero, because the there's 666 and there's 616. And uh, I don't remember exactly what the text says, but it's something along the lines of uh, basically, um, you know, if you know, you know. The number is is the name and 666 uh, from Gematria 
can uh, spell out uh, in Hebrew characters the name Nero Caesar. And 666 and 616 are the different uh, sums you get depending on whether you're spelling that name uh, in Latin or in Greek. Because if it's in Latin, it's Nero Kaiser, and it adds up to 616 according to the Hebrew characters. Um, if you are spelling it using Hebrew characters but spelling it according to the Greek, it's Neron Kaiser. And that extra noon uh, adds 50 to it. And so it goes from 616 to 666. Uh, and I think that makes it all but uh, demonstrated that this was a reference to Nero. And we've also got this idea that the beast was dead, but was going to come back to life. And there's a tradition that we know not just from Christianity, but from elsewhere in the Roman Empire, uh, this tradition of what they called the Nero Redivivus, which was basically the idea that Nero didn't, well, there are different forms of it. One is that Nero didn't die, ran off into hiding and is going to come back. And the other is that Nero did die, but was going to come back to life. And so this is probably what's going on in Revelation, that this is not a reference to anything that's going to take place now. It has nothing to do with Jeffrey Bezos and Amazon implanting chips in your hand or in your forehead. Uh, but this is part of this fantasy. This is, you know, they're coming to get you. Nero's coming back. And, uh, and this is the number. And that was a way to kind of hide the reference to Nero. Uh, and, but don't worry, because God's in control. Right. Hey, Dan, I got to ask you a question. Yes, Am sir. I the only person who, when I was at a recent Marvel movie, uh, wondered if there's a coincidence between the 616 uh, <laughs> and the fact that that's the number of our multiverse? My understanding is that that is actually the office number uh, of the writer's room or something like that, where they came ah. up with with the multiverse. But yeah, I've had a, I've had a lot of people point that out. I got that a lot on... Um, Whenever I do a 666 video and I mention 616, I get a bunch of comments about that. <laughs> so you're saying that sometimes a coincidence is just a coincidence? It is possible, yes. Um, Britt Hartley, I just want to put it up on the screen. Maybe a couple of these are messages that were in the comments. Is Mormon, let me ask you, is Mormonism ready for this level of scholarship? Um, if this blends itself into kind of the common understanding of the saints, is that is Mormonism ready for that? Uh, I think I think there are a lot of people who are who are ready to do that within Mormonism and are, are who are moving in that direction, whether or not the institution tries to stop them, tries to, to push them out. That's that's a question to which I don't know the answer, but I am moving in that direction. And I have uh, I know plenty of folks who, who are also moving in that direction. Um, and so I hope. I hope that it's ready um, yeah. <clears throat> for that. There are obviously growing pains associated with that. I have not really personally felt the effects apart from people saying mean things on Twitter uh, yeah. about me. Um, I, I, just, I just saw a survey that came out that said that, you know, Jews are the most informed on the kind of biblical scholarship, biblical data. And, and Mormons were really far down the list um, that, that Mormons don't have a general knowledge of kind of the biblical scholarship that goes on. Hmm. And it was, and it was like 50 questions answered. And then Jews got to the Jewish faith, got folks from there from got like 19 correct and Mormons got 13 correct or something. It's not like it's a significant divide, but the Latter-day Saints were on the lower end of that. And there's so much data here that kind of forces us to change our views. So they were just interested if that was the case. And then yeah. one other quick one, 
Um, Jonathan Streeter said, if all texts are negotiated by the reader for purposes of advancing an ideology, what do you use to make the case that your negotiation of the text and ideology should be dominant? Um, I, I don't try to say that my reading needs to be dominant, but I, I try to, to share the data. And a lot of times, yeah. just the format of social media, and particularly TikTok, uh, mitigate my ability to, to share all the data, which is why I, I sometimes point people to, to papers and books and, and things like that. But to the degree I can succinctly share the data, I try to, and just say, here are the data, here are, this is what the majority of scholars agree on, and, and try to leave it at that. And, and if I'm combating another view, I'll do what I can to show that the arguments that support that view are based on on fallacies or or yeah. on false claims or or things like that. But I but yeah, I I can't that. say the way I you know this is the only way to think about it, and you have to accept the way I think about it. That's banging my head against a brick wall. That's not going to totally. do me any good. So, and I think you so, do a phenomenal job of addressing questions and showing the weak view versus kind of your database view. I, I just think you do it brilliantly. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. You're very welcome. Um, do you have time for another call? Yeah. Let's do a, another one here. So, um, caller, what's the name? Hello? Caller. All right. I'm going to return that one to the queue and uh, we'll try this one. Caller, what's the name? Uh, Colby Reddish. Colby, go ahead, my friend. You're on with Dan. Awesome. Well, Dan, thanks for coming on, and I'm a huge fan of the way you try and correct uh, biblical misinformation. Um, I have a question for you about the relationship between the idolatrous god Elkanah in the Book of Abraham. Mm -hmm. There was recent scholarship published by Stephen Smoot basically saying that the Canaanite god El is a hit for this idolatrous god Elkanah that's a part of the Book of Abraham narrative in their attempt, in, in he and Professor John Key's attempts to find, you know, your approach is very different than theirs. They're trying to find legitimate, in their view, historical hits for the Book of Abraham. Um, the conclusion of the paper I read from him says that the idolatrous god Elkanah mentioned in the Book of Abraham has very likely been identified in the ancient world, and that's the, the Canaanite god El. Given the relationship you see between El, Elohim, Adonai, and the relationship with Asherah, does that, does that theory hold any water to you? Because I see some huge problems with calling that a hit for legitimate antiquity, given the relationship, you know, I think the data supports the relationship between El and the evolution of the Elohim. So yeah, we don't we don't see any pejorative references to El as a member of the Canaanite pantheon within the Hebrew Bible because basically they're adopting El from the Canaanite pantheon. It's not like Baal and Adonai who who are doing battle with each other. But we've got I can think of two different ways that name could be associated with El. And one is uh, the name Elkanah, which is, if I recall, this was Hannah's husband uh, from 1 Samuel 1. Um, 
And, and so that would be, but that would be associated with the other title, which would be El Kone Artsu, which occurs in Genesis 14, 18 through 22 as El Kone, um, probably Eretz Vishamayim. But this is El, uh, KJV says, possessor of heaven and earth. But uh, some people think that Kana, this verbal root Kana, has a procreative nuance. And I actually... Uh, pub not didn't publish. I presented a paper that suggested we could understand this as El Procreator of Heaven and of Earth if we understand Heaven and Earth as deities and they're created through this cosmogonic act of El and uh, and El's consort. And so I I can see that name, uh, you know, some etymological legitimacy to connecting that name with uh, the deity El, but as an idolatrous deity. Uh, that gets a little problematic because that's a title that um, a version of that title is found in the Hebrew Bible as a reference to the God of Israel. Um, now, in, in some Hittite mythology, it goes they go by El Kunirsha, and that's a Hittite transliteration of of this title, El Kone Artsu. So, yeah, I I would have to see what uh, what Stephen and um, and did you say John was working on that as well? John Gee? Yeah, it was in the recent paper, and yeah, it was in the recent publication about the Book of Abraham, I think in BYU Studies, like just okay. recently, and that's, that's, I'm so glad I was able to ask you that question, because, you know, I don't have the, the training or familiarity with the, the ancient world that you do, and but I was seeing this link, particularly because in the paper, they're talking about the relationship between Asherah, the consort of El. And I was familiar with Dr. Peterson's piece also, RFM. And so I saw this as a huge problem. It's basically finding a hit in the ancient world, sure. But it's basically having, you know, whether you do it as Abraham or Joseph Smith, basically hearing from the same deity that that deity was this idolatrous god that wanted yeah. Abraham sacrificed on the altar. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, yeah, I, I would have to see their argument in full to see exactly where they're going with this, what data they adduce uh, to make the the claim. But based on my understanding of of these data, it there would be problems with asserting that that El um, Elkanaz uh, can be framed as a as an idolatrous wicked deity. Right. So as I understand what you said there, Dan, the first problem is oh, sorry, Colby. I was Thank just going to say that. words, Colby. Bye bye. Great question. Great question. I, I'm hearing that there's the twofold problems. First off, that name shows up as a actual person in the Hebrew scriptures, the husband yeah. of. I think it's Hannah. spelled slightly differently in the book of Abraham, but um, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that's the first thing. But the second thing is maybe more problematic is that the derivation of the name of that character in the Hebrew scriptures is something that has to do with the name of God, the real God, the God who's worshiped. And not the idolatrous, idolatrous God as El Canaan or El Kenner mm -hmm. or however they want to put that in there is represented in the book of Abraham. Yeah. And, and I, again, I don't know what their case is. So um, I, yeah. I'm, I'm just stating what's uh, what's it seems to me based on how it's been represented. I'm going to say that um, there is a reason and method in my madness about bringing up that 616. Because it's a remarkable coincidence if we're going to deal with, I don't know, numbers between one and a thousand. Okay. So you pick a number between one and a thousand, Bill, and you pick one, Dan. What are the odds you're going to pick the same number? 
300. What? 300. I think it's one in a thousand. I know, but, I want but I'm not good at statistics. I want, to see, I, want to, I want to see what Dan's number is. Oh, no, no, you can't. That's not <laughs> good. But, you know, this idea about 616 for the Marvel Universe, and that's our universe in the multiverse. They all have different numbers. And yet the Book of Abraham, we uh, Book of Abraham, Book of Revelation, 666. Everybody knows that. But in a couple of early manuscripts, it's 616. So virtually nobody except people in Bible studies know about. And then, I mean, if this were Mormonism, if the if the Marvel Universe, the MCU were Mormonism, then Dan Peterson and Steven Smoot would be saying that this early version of the book of Revelation and the 616 number proves the MCU is true. <laughs> and that's why even sometimes remarkable coincidences are just coincidences and we have to proceed with caution when we're trying to establish causation between yeah. the two. Yeah. Yeah. Not trying I, I to try your patience, Dr. McClellan. Do you have five yeah. more minutes for one more phone call? Um, I, I, I don't have any more. We're, we're good. The one person we put back on hold and I ended it thinking he was really close to his time to get out. Oh, okay. okay. So sorry. That's okay. It's probably good news for Dan. Yeah. <laughs> we should. So if you're in any trouble stuff. with the missus, just blame me. I will. It's one of my many functions. <laughs> I appreciate I take that. a bullet for you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dan, for coming on the show tonight. It has been an absolute pleasure and a joy for me personally. I've really had a great time. And um, I wish you all the best of luck in everything in your future. If you want to plug that just for a second here before we go out, anything you want to plug, please do so now. Uh, yeah, I, ho I hope people will check out my podcast, the Data Over Dogma podcast. We got two episodes coming out. We're planning to release uh, on Mondays. Uh, and then I've also got an online class coming up on May 11th. I'm going to teach on the Divine Council. So I've been doing these online classes for a while. I just asked for a donation of whatever you want. If you want to join us for a dollar, more than welcome to join us for a dollar. And uh, there's more information and registration at my website, which is mcclellan.org, but not my actual last name, my... my um, uh, username m-a-k-l-e-l-a-n.org you can go there for more and, and also for all the past online classes that I've that I've taught I understand that's the oh. Guatemalan transliteration of your name <laughs> the the Uruguayan transliteration Uruguayan yeah, yeah. you go I, Uruguayan I'll go mine there you go I, I think the the sentiment is the same the, uh, having a last name that begins with four consonants in a row is not going to be helpful down there no I did the same <laughs> kind of thing in Japan with my name yeah, because they just can't say Radio Free Mormon very well. Too many R's. <laughs> so, uh, but thank you again so much, Dan. Everybody, thank you. everybody, yeah. good night. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Maven. And we'll see you next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. <laughs>